Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're going with Michael Darda. He's the chief economist and market strategist at MKM Partners. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Great to see you. Great once to be again. back. Thank you. Uh, alas, poor York. You write, alas, fiscal policy in the U.S. Uh, looks dead. Uh, what role, when we look at the, the the record numbers that we've seen this week, Dow hitting 23,000, how much of that do you attribute to the to the prospects still uh, that there might be somewhere in the quarters of Congress work proceeding on, on new fiscal policy? Well, not much, David, and that's a very controversial and unpopular view. But consider the fact that emerging markets are up, what, 30-plus percent this year. Let's take a look at the Eurozone business cycle. They have the same lift in business confidence and PMIs that we're seeing in the U.S. So, you know, the idea that we can continue to attribute what's happening here, whether it's the market or data, to a surprise election that happened last fall, just to me seems like a real stretch. Now, maybe something minor gets done on the fiscal side, but in terms of sweeping reforms or an enormous tax cut, which isn't reform in my opinion, I think the chances of that are quite slim. So we could extrapolate that further. It's not just uh, the prospect of an infrastructure package, for instance. It is a tax reform package as well. Well, look, reform, at least in my book, implies that you are streamlining and simplifying, that you're essentially paying for lower rates with base broadening. So it should be revenue neutral if you're doing it right. 1986 is the gold standard, bipartisan, revenue neutral. President Reagan wouldn't accept anything less. This is not what I'm hearing coming out of Washington. I mean, they, you know, they started discussing closing certain loopholes and there was a violent reaction and there's been a backing off. And now I'm hearing that, you know, some of the conservative members want a Fed chair that runs it hot so they can expand the deficit. The same members that wanted a deflationary monetary policy under a previous president. I mean, it's just jaw-dropping. When you look at that that list of five names, including Chair Yellen, uh, the president says he's considering those five, um, how much difference is there between them? When when you look at the effect they might have on the economy, the effect on on the markets, uh, how satisfied are you with the list that you you have in front of you? And and, uh, do you think that each stands to to be different, a different type of candidate when it comes to the economy and the markets? Well, I think they all, you know, have their own particular set of strengths. If, you know, you want to emphasize the, you know, the positive. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, I have a bias here. I mean, I think Yellen is on the list and I think she's the most qualified. I think it's hard to take a look around uh, and not, you know, just assume that she's, you know, the best person for the job. Uh, especially if you're interested in continuity. That said, she seems to have fallen out of favor, you know, with some of the president's closest advisors. So now it looks like it's coming down to a Taylor or a Powell. Powell probably would be the, you know, candidate that would have the, you know, the view would be the most continuity. Taylor maybe, I mean, if you, if you're just looking at his rule, it says short rates should be hundreds of basis points higher than they are now. That scares some, but anyone who comes in is going to have to govern by consensus. So I don't think with any of these particular individuals, you'd have a abrupt radical U change in policy. That's just not how the Fed operates. You mentioned 1986. Let me take the opportunity to ask you about 1987 uh, as well, as we've been sort of looking back on, on the events of, of this yeah. week, 30 years ago. What have we learned since then? Uh, what did we not see leading into, leading into a Black Monday in 1987? 
Well, we've certainly had a few bad bear markets and significant corrections since then. But unfortunately for individual investors, it seems like they forget the lessons of the past in the sense that if you are, you know, if you're not out of the market and then a severe drop takes place 20% or more, the best thing you can do is just grit your teeth and hang in there. And that really goes against every human psychological impulse, right? I mean, you know, psychology makes us want to buy at the top and sell everything at the bottom. And it's really difficult to lean against those impulses. But if we can be unemotional about it, look at the history, you know, that's, you know, it's really, you know, if you'd stayed in there, well, I mean, look how well you did even with 2007 and 2008, right? I mean, if you weren't able to get out of the market before that, you know, that huge uh, bear trend started, if you just stuck with it, you've done extremely well, but few did. Well, you mentioned earlier, good morning, everyone. Tom Keenan, David Gurr, Worldwide, getting ready for Yankees Astros tonight, among others. Say good, particularly good morning on Sirius XM Channel 119, early morning, Los Angeles, coming home from the celebrations of the Dodgers. <laughs> uh, Michael Darty, you said earlier today on this linkage of bonds to equities, when do we relink? When do we reattach to normality? Well, <clears throat> so, yeah. You know, that could happen two ways. It could happen with bond yields rising, or we could yep. continue to enjoy uh, equity price valuation gains, uh, equity price gains that push up valuations, and you could relink in that fashion. Different models will have, you know, tell you that there's a different disparity, but one thing we don't have today that we had in 1987, you know, was a big divergence in favor of bonds, right? The stock market was very expensive relative to the bond market, and we had a big increase in long rates that year with the stock market rising up until, you know, we were in the late summer, I think we peaked. So 300 basis points surge in long rates. If something like that today would clearly cause a big stock market upheaval. So if that's your forecast, then certainly you'd be negative on equities. But we tell clients, look, the Fed is raising short rates and reducing the balance sheet. All the things that were supposed to spike long rates haven't done it. So, you know, maybe it's the new normal, maybe it's debt and demographics, whatever you want to call it. The Fed being able, you know, being willing to undershoot the inflation target consistently, you know, whatever these you know, these forces are, yeah. long rates don't look like they're headed up dramatically uh, anytime soon. So. Mike, you know, we'll have to leave it there. Michael Darda, just terrific news flow this morning. Thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Can you try to come in on a quieter Friday next time? <laughs> I'm glad. It's, it's great yeah. to I'd love you know, to talk to you the day we hear about a Fed chairman. Yes. Okay. The new chairman I'd be happy to come back then. You know, pick up the MKM phone. Yes. He has in his car, <laughs> he's got a red phone on the dashboard, which is the... The surveillance issued surveillance issued yeah, phone okay. michael darter thank you, <laughs> thank you so much without further ado nicholas Heyman joins us on our phone lines mr Heyman, uh among the mix of people we talk to on general electric has been more constructive uh, and we're thrilled that he can join us this morning. Nick, I want to cut to the chase, which is in GE Power, not so much is there a sense of fraud, but was there a sense of deception of how business would slow? Well, certainly that was uh, one of the biggest holes in the quarter. Oil and gas was also pretty challenged, yep. but they took some write-downs uh, in power um, at uh, conversion, and I, I 
we'll have to see here. You know, I think that that uh, um, the business, you know, is uh, facing a challenge where it, you know, shifts from developed countries to more, you know, emerging and non-developed countries. Gas turbines are still going to be a, a functional part of the power solution on the planet, and GE's got the best product in the market. But as we just saw yesterday, right. Siemens is closing 11 out of 23 plants. What's your timeline for the magic of a new CEO? Is this going to be a hockey stick or a V, I should say, where we go down and come right back? Or is this going to be quarters of agony? Well, I, you know, right now, I would have thought, Tom, that the market might have been thinking that uh, $1.15 or $1.20 was where we were headed this year. Obviously, they suggested $1.05 to $1.10. So that would uh, indicate uh, still much larger restructuring actions are to come in the fourth quarter. And um, presumably, that will begin to set the path for next year on, on a stronger footing. So instead of this year, being, you know, uh, partway down and 18 at the bottom, we'll have to see. But my sense is, obviously, uh, at 105, 110, we're at the bottom this year. The question is, where do you go back to next year? David, Nick, how large does uh, does Jeff Immelt loom in this uh, in this quarterly report? Do you, do you see evidence of his tenure yet? And, and uh, how quickly do you think uh, the, the new CEO, John Flannery, is proceeding with the, the transformation? Oh, he's proceeding at light speed. You know, there's no question about it, you know, that he's changing the board, he's changing the senior management, he's changing the culture, he's changing the cost structure radically. And I think we're going to see a lot more of pruning uh, of the portfolio, not big things, but, you know, peripheral things that don't earn their cost of capital. Help an amateur like me. I print out this press release. So it, <laughs> it's very easy to read with a lot of big font and blue text. And then uh, attached to it, I've got re, uh, I've got uh, recast to GE Industrials Financials and then as originally reported GE Industrial Financials. Help me understand the difference between those two spreadsheets. Um, there have been four different sets of earnings from GE yeah. um, over the last several years. And this has been one of the issues that, um, you know, the company has taken a slant on earnings to exclude pension expense, to exclude contract assets, which in essence are deferred, you know, revenues that are, you know, realized up front. And, um, you know, I think that uh, as John goes forward, we're going to move back a lot closer to a gap number you know, that's adjusted for gains and or, you know, one-time costs or restructuring items. Do you load the boat this morning? I mean, if you loved it at 30, you're going to love it here. Yeah, I, I didn't. This is, I don't believe, a broken company. Remember that... It doesn't you know, look GE like one of my that, screen, Nick. It doesn't... This is the heart of the matter, folks. I'm looking at the financials on my screen. Orders, backlog, the sum total is pretty darn good. Then, Nick, why is the stock getting beaten up? Well, it's getting beaten up because people obviously, you know, uh, don't have much of a forward visibility right now, not only about the earnings, but people, you know, the questions are around the dividend. And, um, you know, is the dividend that right now the market's discounting something in the neighborhood of, uh, you know, a 25, 30% reduction in that dividend? And the question is, you know, is that a good decision to, to make? Um, you know, given the company's certainly got plenty of liquidity, the debt trades all above par, um, they're ahead of plan on cost out at one point. Two billion. We thought they might get to one four. They promised in April to do a billion. Right. So they're, they're well, pro- you know, things are are you know, and, and they've and they've brought out you know you know all brand new products in the last two or three years across right. all their businesses what, that are state of the art. I believe it's November thirteenth. What's Nick Heyman's number one question? November thirteenth at the analyst meeting, where you animals go up against these guys and you really get nasty. What's the nasty <laughs> what, Nick what Heyman is the, question? What is Tom? What's the pathway forward for? 
you know, uh, revitalizing the cash flow from operating activities. We need 15 to 16 to sustain the current level of $8 billion in dividends and a normalized level of, you know, uh, capital spending at 25 to $3 billion. And, you know, if you can get to 15 or 16 next year, which obviously this year they now project 7 instead of 12 to 14, and, uh, you know, we thought maybe it'd be 11 with a lot more restructuring. Well, there's more wow. restructuring and write-downs to come. Thank you for the brief. Greatly appreciated. Nick Heyman in the heart of his most historic day with General Electric. Just an ugly statement in the stock down. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. David, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest? Uh, we've got Jeff Sprague coming up on GE, I should say, after Nick Heyman. Thrilled. This is what we do on surveillance. Give you a set of opinions on General Electric, and we'll do that with Mr. Sprague in a bit. Uh, David, why don't you bring in our esteemed guest, the former basketball player <laughs> who uh, shot hoops with President Obama? One of many items on the CV. Uh, that's uh, Bob Hormatz, <laughs> Vice Chair Kissinger Associates, former Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, uh, and the Environment here with us, as Tom says, in our Bloomberg 1130 uh, studios. You missed it earlier in the week. Tom was practicing the President Xi clap uh, on air, the, right. con the constant clap that we heard during the address that he gave to the one. People's Congress. There's this one. Right. Helping us with well, the, that's uh, one tradition in China that the audience claps for you and you clap for the audience. There you go. So it's part of the way Chinese culture works. Okay. There and we it's go. It's a very nice thing. What? Sort of, but they're good at it. They're very good at it. And they have it. a lot of time to do it. Yes. What's three, on the three, three hours? Speech? Let's start there. What, what well, did you hear in his speech? This is yeah. what's called the work uh, program or the work report, and it's traditionally very long. It's who start, Who do we blame? Mao? Uh, it goes way back. I mean, the work report is uh, provided by the current um, party secretary, who's now Xi Jinping, about the last five years under his tutelage, under his uh, domain, and then about the next five years. So it's really a long report. And it's good, actually, that it's long because it really represents a consensus of thinking Are you kidding? in the party. I actually. Oh, come on. <laughs> President, I, I, President Trump is looking at that going, David, he's going, I could do that. <laughs> he could do that. But the fact is, it's filled with a lot of interesting stuff. The, it, there's a lot of general language in it. But almost every time this report comes out, very specific things occur afterwards, even though the language itself mm. seems very general. For instance, just an interesting number. President Jiang Zemin mentioned the market 54 times when he gave his report to the 17th Party Congress. President Xi mentioned it 18 times. Uh -huh. So it shows you when you look at it and you do you know, your sort of analysis where the emphasis is and how it's changed. Those things, they don't seem to be useful, but in effect, they do reflect a David, consensus of the party. Harmatz is looking at the way the white smoke blows when they when they That's name right. the Pope. Yes, you know, he, he also loves Pop either. There was such a heavy burden of expectations leading to this event. Uh, what did we learn from this, this speech itself? It had a long time horizon. He's looking ahead many decades out. What, what does China look like in his vision here 20, 30 years out? He sees this as a new era in China where China has gone through some economic difficulties and is now, particularly as a result of how well it survived the financial crisis of 2008 and the difficulties it had a couple of years ago, 
feels a lot more self-confidence about its economy. It's growing at 6.7, 6.8%. So the economy is moving ahead. He's positive about that. He's also very assertive about China's role in the world, that China wants to be, at, he put, as he put it, center stage. And that is it wants to play a greater role globally. It certainly wants to play a greater role in the region. The U.S. has obliged him by pulling out of TPP giving the Chinese trade negotiations that are going on, the RCEP, more opportunity to reflect China's point of view. One Belt, One Road is going to link China to the rest of Asia and to Europe and other parts of the world. They have a new base in Djibouti. They're playing a stronger role in South, in, in, in South China Sea. So he sees a more confident China economically at home, a more confident China abroad, a more assertive China, and China's going to play a greater role. And this is the Xi Jinping era. The Mao started the, 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 the new China after the revolution. Deng got the reforms underway. Xi Jinping will lead China into a new era of greater economic uh, prosperity and greater assertiveness abroad. It's a new era in his view. And China will be center stage at the world meetings of various sorts like the G20 and elsewhere. And that will give China greater prestige, which Chinese want. There, there's a strong feeling of nationalism and that we have a role in the world to play now as we did a couple of hundred years ago. Here's a dumb question. Tom's going to allow me a couple of them here on this this Friday. What's the role of, of the party in China today? How much has that changed over these generations? The role of the party is stronger today under Xi Jinping, uh, in part because Xi Jinping is a strong leader. He's the leader of the party. He believes in the party. The other is that they've established, in order to get things done, what they call these small leading groups. The leading groups are led by Xi Jinping. He's the chair, and they bring in party leaders and other government leaders. But the point to make about this is there are groups under the government, under the leadership of the prime minister, and then there are smaller groups that are led by the head of the party, Xi Jinping, also, of course, head of the government, but also involve um, members of the Standing Committee of the Politburo and other senior leaders. And we haven't found out how that's going to change yet. Who's going to yes, comprise that? We haven't found out what the Standing Committee is going to look like. But there'll be probably, as there were last time, seven, although it could be reduced to five. One of the key questions is Wang Shishan, who's now the leader of the anti-corruption group, but also very knowledgeable about the economy. I work with him a lot because he was the economic guy at the Strategic and Economic Dialogue with the U.S. So I've gotten to know him quite well. It may well be that he retains his role in the standing committee. Wang Yang, who's the current uh, economic guy, the vice minister for economics, is a candidate for uh, the the job of a member of the standing committee and another guy I've worked with. So I'm actually fairly comfortable that at least I've had a chance to meet and work with some of these people. And they are basically knowledgeable about the global economy. They want China to play a greater role in the global economy. They're used to working with Americans and foreigners. These are very sophisticated people. Um, who are uh, going to be at least candidates for this new what, job. What are they going to, uh, to say to their counterparts from the U.S. when they get there in a couple weeks' time? You talked about the strategic and economic dialogue. There were these formalized meetings right. uh, over the years uh, under these past administrations. That's uh, changing somewhat under this administration. How robust is that relationship now? How essential is this first meeting going to be for a lot of them? It'll be very important because, of course, President Trump's going there in November. But I think what China is saying, what 
President Xi is saying is, we're going to assert our interests. We're not going to be pushed around. He didn't mention in any detail relations with the United States, but it's clear that he understands he has to work with the United States. He, it's not that he wants a confrontation with us. He does not. Well, but he wants to assert Chinese views. And he's saying our economic model actually is working. So if your country is around the world thinking about what your economic model ought to be, take a look at how well we've done. Bob, I want to get this question in and we'll come back with you and continue. This is just a brilliant discussion. In Ken Burns' Vietnam video, the 10 episodes, right. our relationship with China is one of the constant changing events throughout do you see continuity here, or are we just going to continue to change and evolve our relationship with China? I think it will change and evolve. In part, there'll be continuity because there's a lot of business relationships and financial relationships. We work with them. Yeah, many the of which you established. Okay. And, and that was really one of my roles. I thought that the, the history of the next 10, 20 years would be written in part by how effectively we work with China. Not that we're always going to agree. That we would embed our relationships we with would embed Is ours. that going to change? I mean, are you going to be in a Ken Burns video I think, in five I years? Th- I, think, I think that the Chinese are going to want and are in a position to assert their interests to a much greater degree in global institutions, okay. certainly in regional institutions, than they were in the past. And right. we don't seem to have a strategy. We don't have a TPP. Precisely where I want we to go. We don't seem to have a strategy we don't have a for TPP. dealing we're... with them. And unless we develop okay. a strategy, Bob, they do have a strategy. i got to go to commercials, Bob. Be okay. Go Robert, for it. Ambassador go for Hormans. the commercial, Ambassador Hormans is just it. fired All up right, right now. All right. We're going to come back <laughs> and, and continue this important discussion that was elegantly with done, Tom, Robert Hormans of Kissinger <laughs> Associates. Uh, David's better at this than I am. I'm going to let him pick it up. But i got one issue. You say a key guy, because we're all Hong Kong on the brain, Shanghai on the brain. Some of us have been to Beijing. There's a whole nother China out there. And one of them is, is it Chongqing? Is that the right pronunciation? Chongqing, yes. Which is in southwest China. Sort of southwest and it's where Chiang Kai-shek was yeah. in World War II. It's one of the four big cities that are governed by a senior party secretary. Um, and why are you looking at Chongqing well, I'm looking now? At it because Wang Yang, who I think could be, he's now the vice premier for economic issues and someone I've worked with, very able guy. He used to be party secretary in Chongqing. And there's another person we haven't heard much about, but we will, I expect, because I think he'll be on the standing committee, is a guy named Chen Minier, who is currently party secretary of Chongqing. So it, what, what's interesting about China is when an American president comes to office, he's a senator or a governor from, unless he's a businessman from, a certain area like Illinois or New York right. or California. Virtually everyone who goes to the standing committee of China, of the standing committee of the Politburo, has served in several provinces as party secretary. They move around, or yes. So they know the country. They know the country very well. And many of them have served, including uh, President Xi Jinping, in some very rural areas and some urban areas. So they know the country well. They're, it's a very different perspective that they bring to this job. They've been party secretaries. They've been proved to be successful elsewhere, create jobs, create growth, but they know the whole country. They don't just know one part of it. Now, it's a very interesting difference in the governance process of China. They also, at 68, are supposed to uh, depart office or at least not be uh, reconfirmed. This time we may see a surprise. Wang Shishun 
is 68 now. He is a very able okay. guy. He may be retained to stay on, even though he's now reached the the traditional yeah. time frame to David? leave. David? Yeah, Bob, your, your enthusiasm for this country, this region, is, is palpable. And I, I wonder why you think it is uh, this administration doesn't seem to, to share it. I know that the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Pacific Affairs uh, is... Uh, somebody feeling that they haven't nominated somebody no, for that that's role. Right. There's, there's, acting, uh, there's an acting assistant right. secretary. Um, Rex Tillerson's been there a couple of times. I was speaking with Secretary Albright yesterday, and she said her first trip to China was, I think, uh, less than a month after she was named Secretary mm-hmm. of State. Is is the level of engagement enough? And what would you say to this administration about how engaged they have to be with China going forward? Well, the level of engagement is definitely not enough. I started going to China in the early 70s when Mao was party secretary and Joe Enlai was premier. And so I've seen it change. And the one thing about it is we will find many issues where we agree and many issues where we disagree with China. The critical element is, first of all, to understand it and understand the people who are leading it, understand the people who are leading it, and the fact that they have to be responsive to public opinion. It's not a democracy, but they have to be responsive to public opinion. And understanding that public opinion is very important. Also understanding how China perceives its interests is very important. You can't do that sitting in Washington or New York or anywhere else. You've got to go to China, talk to China, and not just go, as Tom was mentioning a moment ago, to Shanghai or Beijing. You've got to go to these middle-level or inner cities. And these are big cities. Chongqing is a very big city. Chengdu, Western China, very big city. So you've got to really see China, understand that there's China, and then there are various provinces. The provinces have different points of view. But virtually anything of consequence in the world over the next several years, certainly in the economic area and almost every part of the security world, is going to depend to some degree on how the United States and China work together. So it's not something we can dismiss or take lightly. But we also have to make sure that we have good relations with our allies, our friends, um, Japan, South Korea, the EU, because in fact, we're, we're stronger in dealing with China if we have strong friendships and alliances of other countries as well. The Chinese have the same idea. They're trying to develop strong partnerships and and alliances with other countries. So they understand this is one-to-one, but it's also groups vis-a-vis groups. Bob, I believe if I saw Ken, you know, I had Ken, I had a beverage of my choice in my hand through most of Ken Burns' Vietnam, Mm -hmm. but I believe a Republican president, quote-unquote, opened China. Is this administration now anti-China? I think this administration is probably not anti-China, but some of the things they're doing are going to make our relationship with China very difficult unless they understand. And perhaps this trip by President Trump will help this understanding, understanding that China is going to be a more assertive player. And while we might not agree with China and won't agree with China on a lot of issues, we have to work uh, with it. Nixon understood that. He understood that there – and he was a traditional, a very conservative guy, but he understood you had to work with China on key issues. President Trump has to come to that understanding. You have to work with China, and you're not going to push them around. You're not going to push them around because they feel a sense of confidence. They feel they've been quite successful on their economics. They feel they're in a stronger position, certainly in East Asia, than they were five years ago. And we have to figure out a way of what 
the Chinese call win-win situations, which essentially are situations or solutions that enable us and the Chinese to come away feeling we have each made progress. That takes a lot of engagement, a lot of engagement at senior levels. And, you know, Tillerson has gone there a couple of times and has tried to do this. We have to do it across the board, but it has to be done because the world will not work well. Mm -hmm. The the global economy won't work well. Global security will not be uh, stable unless we find some way of working with China, even if we don't agree, at least figure out a way of managing our differences. Yes, you thought the JCPOA and what we Mm -hmm. saw from uh, President Trump a couple of weeks back, he essentially punting a decision over to to Congress to figure out what to do with that Iran nuclear deal. You mentioned Nixon and China. He seemed to own that part of that foreign policy portfolio, I think, of President Obama doing the same thing with with Iran. It became something that was squarely centered in the the executive branch. Do you understand his motivations for moving it over to to Congress? Did that make sense to you, what he elected to do last week? Well, it it, it made sense um, if you look at it from a domestic political point of view. He didn't want to have to recertify the – With gritted teeth. The the sanctions lifting every uh, 90 days. Um, but it, it, what troubles me about it is that if the Congress decides, whatever it decides, if it decides to uh, reimpose sanctions or, it deci- or, or they, the president has said, unless we can change the agreement to comply with the kind of criteria he put into his speech, like eliminating these sunsets or doing a number of other things, uh, then he's going to reimpose sanctions himself. He'll, the Congress, if they can't reach an agreement or we can't reach an agreement with their allies and the Iranians to change the agreement, he said he would reimpose sanctions and get out of the agreement. The problem with that is, what's the strategy? Getting out of an agreement um, and tearing it up and reimposing sanctions you can you can predict what's going to happen. One will have a big confrontation with their allies because our allies understand that the Iranians are complying with the agreement. So they're going to continue to trade with and invest in uh, Iran unless the United States takes very tough actions against uh, our allies to try to prevent them from doing that, which requires um, will lead to a split, will lead to friction between the U.S. and its allies. And second, if the Iranians say the Americans have violated the agreement, we're going to start uh, a, a more advanced, uh, more uh, intensive enrichment mm-hmm. program mm-hmm. because we now feel free to do that. Then what do we do in the region? I think we're in a much better position with this agreement than well, without it. Is it perfect? No, but we're in a much stronger <clears throat> position if the Iranians yeah. cut back as they have on their enrichment program and their reactors. Um, then, then at least we have more transparency and we well, have a stable we'll have process. Ambassador, thank you so much. Robert Hormatz with us this morning. Coming up on General Electric, this is Bloomberg. I'm going to get right to it. I think it's really important to, uh, to do that. Uh, this morning, and we'll do it. Uh, what, what, what's important to me, David, is there's like crossroad states or, you know, states that are so diverse and odd and strange, Illinois, Florida. Maryland is like a mini Illinois, mini Florida. It's a hugely diverse state. It, it's really cool. 
And, and one of two representing that state in the U.S. Senate is uh, our next guest, Senator Chris Van Hollen, former uh, congressman from the 8th District in Maryland, uh, now in the Senate among the committees he sits on, uh, is the Budget Committee. And let's start there as we uh, look at the what comes next here after the uh, the debate over the debate and the vote over the budget uh, last night uh, in the Senate. Give us your reaction. First of all, I've been scrolling through your uh, Twitter profile this morning, Senator Van Hall. I think your, your your distaste for this piece of legislation there is, is is pretty apparent. Give us just a quick quick sense here of of, of why you didn't like this piece of legislation. Uh, absolutely. And first, uh, you're right about Maryland. We call it America in miniature because it's uh, geographically and demographically yes. diverse. But look, uh, and that's a good place to start on this uh, tax plan. Uh, this tax plan would really hit uh, Maryland hard, as it would the other 49 states, unless you're at the very top of the income scale. If you're a millionaire, a billionaire, this is a great tax plan for you. You will get a whopping big tax break. But a lot of that tax break is going to be paid for by two sources. One, a lot of middle-class taxpayers are going to be hit hard, in large part because of their removal of the deduction for state and local taxes, but also other elements. And then their budget sets it up so they could also cut things like a Medicaid by close to a trillion dollars, Medicare by close to $500 billion, cut education. So at the end of the day, between middle-class taxpayers who are going to be paying more and you know, folks who are going to see less services, whether it's Medicare or education, this is a tax break for very wealthy people paid for by pretty much everybody else. I look at uh, the, the president's statement from last night. Uh, in previous statements, there's been uh, a, some semblance of an olive branch here, hoping to work on things in a bipartisan uh, fashion. I don't see that with uh, with this statement from last night on the budget and, and tax reform. From your vantage, how much bipartisanship is there on the issue of, of tax reform? We know that Senator Orrin Hatch, the chairman of the Finance Committee, is uh, working away on, on legislation on the Senate side. Uh, have you seen olive branches? Have you been invited to participate? Uh, what what role are you and your Democratic colleagues playing at this point when it comes to the tax reform process? Look, I, I think it's been minimal, unfortunately, uh, because we would like to participate uh, fully. I believe we do need to simplify our tax code. We need to make reforms to our tax code. We should do it in an open and transparent way. We should make sure there are hearings where everybody can weigh in on the impact these proposals will uh, make. But so far, uh, we've seen this proposal put together behind closed doors, uh, little pieces of it uh, trickling out. What we have seen has not been a good. We all know that when they actually did successful tax reform back in 1986, it was done in a bipartisan uh, way. And the reason this budget vote is so troubling is because the only reason for this vote uh, is to set up the fast track so-called reconciliation process in the Senate, which allows them to jam it through on a purely partisan basis. We need a bipartisan bill. You know your your caucus well, and, and I want to go back to a, a line from the president from earlier this week. He met with members of the Senate Finance Committee at the White House, and in remarks to the press, he raised the specter of there being bipartisan support for uh, tax reform. He said he's not going to name names, but uh, there are those who have said that they are uh, willing to support it. Does that jive with what you're seeing on the Hill, what you're hearing from Democratic colleagues? Do you think that there is, uh, maybe hidden from sight, a, a number of Democrats here who are in favor of, of the framework that's been offered by the big six? I think that there are Democrats that would support what the president has publicly claimed about his tax plan, but which 
is not reflected in the tax plans that they put forward in no. the Senate. So I think you're going to you would find broad support uh, for a tax plan which really focused on providing uh, some tax relief to folks in the middle uh, class right. uh, and a tax plan that met what was dubbed the Steve Mnuchin rule when he announced it in November 2016, which is there'd be no net tax breaks uh, for the very wealthy and one that did not explode our debt by another $1.5 trillion. So, you know, the president has been saying he, he likes uh, those principles, but they are not reflected in the plan that he's been touting around the country. Um, if you're just joining us right now, Senator Van Hollen with us of Maryland, Democrat from Maryland, uh, 14 years in the House. Senator Schumer has put him on a couple prestigious committees. And also he's on the subcommittee to save the Baltimore Orioles, which is a Senate committee of very great <laughs> Special import. caucus on Special caucus. <laughs> save the Baltimore Orioles as we uh, can. Senator Van Hollen, long ago and far away in another life, uh, Congressman Emanuel said to you, you got to go out and recruit Democrats. And you, you got five-star accolades for doing that. After what you witnessed in the last election, are you going to be able to go out and recruit Democrats that can shift from an East Coast, West Coast mindset to the middle of the nation where some would argue you lost the presidential election? Can there be a new recruitment process in your Democrat Party? So I'm focused right now on the 2018 midterm elections, right? The Senate elections. I think you're referring to the fact I chair the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Uh, and in this particular cycle of the 33 senators who are up, uh, 25 of them are Democratic incumbents. Uh, there are eight Republican uh, seats uh, that are up. And in fact, uh, we've recruited some very good candidates uh, from those states. So for example, uh, in Nevada, uh, Jackie Rosen uh, is our candidate. Uh, in Arizona, Kirsten Cinema is our candidate. Both of them are currently House members. Uh, and we've got other candidates uh, that have been recruited and are really good candidates in places like Nebraska and other places. However, the Senate map this time around yeah. uh, is is just tougher for Democrats in terms of the number of oh, number of seats where you have Republican incumbents versus Democratic incumbents. But I agree with you that look, we need to we need to focus on a broad and deep economic message focused on jobs and wages. These are things that everybody. Uh, cares about. That doesn't mean we do it to the exclusion of important questions of social justice. The Democratic Party will always be the party of inclusion. Uh, but inclusion uh, also means, you know, making sure that everybody can benefit from uh, growing prosperity. And we need to we need to drive economic growth, but do it in a way where more people benefit. Mm. Senator Van Hollen, the last couple of minutes we have with you, uh, I know that you'll you'll recognize that uh, the issue of who's going to be the next Fed chair is important to those who are listening to, to the show here on, on Bloomberg Radio. You sit on the Senate Banking Committee uh, as well. Give us a, a, a sense or your sense of, of how you think those hearings are going to proceed once we get a nominee uh, from the president to, uh, to get somebody to head the Fed come 2018. Uh, what are those hearings going to be like? What do you want to hear from the, the next nominee to be the chair of the Federal Reserve? Well, I would want uh, a nominee, the chair of the Federal Reserve, to uh, be focused uh, on both prongs of the Federal Reserve's mandate. So, yes, uh, they've obviously got to keep an eye on inflation, but they've also uh, got to make sure that they're focused on uh, 
employment uh, and making sure that we have um, a strong economy with high levels of employment. Uh, so, you know, in my view, the current chair has done a good job of that. Uh, but obviously, we're watching the series of interviews that the president's uh, undertaking, uh, and they'll have a nominee. But from my perspective, you know, I want somebody who is going to be uh, focused on making sure that uh, we put America to work. You look at those those five nominees. Does does any stand out to you as not qualified? Somebody that you don't think you could support? You know, I have not had a chance to really look into the backgrounds of all of the nominees right now, uh, and so we're we're kind of waiting for the president to you know make his choice, and then we'll have an opportunity yeah. to really scrub the records. Yeah, I think Kel Ripkin's on the show. <laughs> That's someone you can go with, Senator. Senator, <laughs> Senator Van Hollen, thank you so much from the great Always state of Always a pleasure. Thank you, yes. Uh, just love talking to uh, these senators and these Congress uh, men and women about the geography, the culture that they encompass. Maryland is extraordinarily underrated for diversity. We just look at this Baltimore, and, you know, the train goes through on the way to Washington, and that is, David, beyond silly. There's much, much more there, to say the least. This is a joy. He's put out three missiles in the last couple days. One of them's on Snapchat. We'll try to get to that in the second block. But uh, as usual, Rich Greenfield, total class act, said, yeah, I guess I got Snapchat wrong. And we'll talk about that maybe. Nobody cares. BTIG and, of course, wonderful work on media. What stopped me in my tracks, Rich, was your legacy media memo of a few days ago, which was a clarion call stop screwing around with stock buybacks and short-termism and start thinking long-term. What's the shift in the autumn of 2017 for legacy media? Look, these these companies are really focused on, you know, trying to maintain earnings, achieve Wall Street expectations, make sure the executives get their compensation, which is usually tied to earnings growth targets. And they're all failing to, to miss that the consumer behavior is shifting rapidly. Yeah. The whole world is kind of rotating around the mobile phone. And they're nowhere to be found. And rather than investing aggressively either through acquisition or through kind of organic um, investment, what they're all doing, or so many of them are doing, they're gunning their share buyback. And, look, we can debate how fast the media sector, legacy sector, is falling apart, bundle, you know, kind of the, the fall sure. off in subscribers and cord cutting, advertising, things that you and I have talked about before. Yeah. Yeah. We can debate it, and there's certainly different rates of decline. But what I think is incredible, Tom, is how can any board of director look at this space and go, God, I am confident that the future looks good. I'm going to buy my own right. stock. That's the best place to put well, capital. That just seems irresponsible. I mean, Disney's bought more stock than any company in the space over the last. Okay, year. is Disney is Disney the next sense. is Disney the next General Electric? Now, the folk uh, folks, we we can talk about GE with their NBC Universal ownership, et cetera. Now over to Comcast and such. But is Disney and other legacy media are they the next General Electric? I think it's a real fear that you have to have looking at this space when when management teams focus on share buyback. It usually means the industry is mature 
And, you know, I think there have to be far better places for Disney to put capital than reinvesting, essentially, in what is a meaningful chunk of ESPN right now, not to mention movies at kind of a pinnacle of success over the last few years. The odds of continuing that success are low. And so, look, I just think it's really hard for me to imagine how the boards get sign-off on buying back lots of stock. I mean, it's one thing if it's a small part of your capital. You know, you look at Facebook, they buy a little bit, or Google, they buy a little bit. But for the level of investment that some of these legacy media companies have done, it really just looks irresponsible. Uh, I pick up the New York Times this morning, another horrifying tale about Harvey Weinstein, uh, this one written by Lupita Nyong'o, and uh, we're left to wonder what happens to the Weinstein company. We had a conversation a little bit earlier in the week when we learned that... uh, Conley Capital is taking a, a big stake in in the company. What happens to this uh, to this to this company, Rich? I mean, it's been around for a while now. Dimension is reportedly still doing well and, and making money. Uh, is it going to be sold off in pieces? What do you think the future of it's going to be? I honestly, I think that's really difficult to tell right now. Uh, look, film libraries or film and television libraries have lots of value. Uh, but how you extricate the assets from all of the issues and, you know, without knowing how long the issues go on for, it, it's just not clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's absolutely value in the properties. I mean, we've, you know, over you know, 23 years of analyzing this space, we've seen lots of film libraries and TV libraries change hands. Uh, they're pretty scarce resources, so there's certainly value there. Yeah. But but when, you know, look, I, I assume most companies in the space would have interest in a film and TV library. The question is, is you know, when are you able to buy it without hair on it? And how long do you think that's going to be? I mean, that, that is the, uh, the $10,000 question. I mean, <laughs> the company the company's going to change his name. Bob Weinstein says that. Uh, does, does that make it more palatable, do you think, to prospective buyer? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I really don't know. All I'd say is that the asset isn't big enough where it moves the needle you know, for any of the majors. I mean, I'm sure everyone would have interest, but I don't think, you know, this is, um, you know, I think there's far bigger implications in this story than who ends up owning the asset. Rich, uh, what is the implication of all the money that's going to be thrown at content? Everybody piling into making, finding the next Game of Thrones, et cetera. What's going to be the outcome of the wall of money coming into L.A. and New York? I think it's very simple. Uh, very severe pressure on linear TV ratings. You know, there's only so much time that you and your listeners to this show have. There's great content. You know, Apple's investing $5 million an episode in a Steven Spielberg show. You know, Amazon is taking a much more, uh, you know, much different approach now going for kind of higher-end comedies and dramas. Netflix is going to do 80 movies next year on their service that you don't have to go to the theaters to see, let alone all the TV series. There's so much competition for your time that the why turn on TV and start watching a show tonight that has 18 minutes of commercials and you have to wait a week yeah. between episodes, that, um, that is in deep trouble. And so I think that's the biggest takeaway okay. is that TV's in trouble. Well, let's do this. Rich Greenfield, thrilled to have him with us. We're going to continue with Mr. Greenfield of BTIG. Yes, we'll speak of Disney. David Gurren, Tom King, stay with us. This is Bloomberg. Rich Greenfield with us. In media, Rich, would you acquire shares of Generous Electric this morning? Uh, I have no idea. Way outside of my <laughs> category of knowledge. I focus on media companies, which GE hasn't been for many years now. But but they tried to do it all, maybe, and there was a conglomeritis. Which is the conglomerate in your world that is most apt to deconglomeratize? 
Well, look, the, I think the company that's done the best job and probably be remembered in the history books as being the smartest CEO that's ever lived in the media space will be Time Warner and Jeff Bukas. Uh, not only did he de-conglomeratize, you know, basically split apart AOL, Warner Music, uh, Time Warner Cable, uh, Time Life, uh, you know, publishing, but to, to finish it all off, not only did he break it into all these little pieces and get smaller and digestible, he ended up just as the industry is starting to um, think, literally think, Tom, he sells the company and gets out for 50% cash. And so while the whole sector has underperformed, look at the success of Time Warner for shareholders. You know, it's pretty amazing. If you look at, you go back to when Bob Iger got up on a conference call in August of 2015, he basically signaled a big inflection point for the sector where he talked about cord cutting starting to affect ESPN. Since that point, Disney's lost $50 billion of value. Kind of all of the big cable network-driven companies collectively have lost $90 billion. But Time Warner is actually up over that period yeah. of time because they sold. I'm going to do know, a, And so yeah. that's the key thing is, is, is selling has been the only way you've created right. value for shareholders in this sector over the last couple yeah. of years. And, David Gura, we're going to do what we do best, which is steal ideas from our guests. I'll do a chart <laughs> of that. We'll call it the Rich Greenfield chart. But it is uh, remarkable to see the differential between TWX and DIS. There's a little shameless theft here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Let me ask you about uh, your sense of the, the regulatory landscape in Washington, D.C., as we see more regulators being appointed and, and confirmed. Uh, and you mentioned Time Warner, of course, is the AT&T Time Warner deal still sitting on the, the back burner. Uh, do we have a better sense here of what this regulatory landscape looks like and, and, and what that's going to mean for, for conglomerates and for, for deal making? Uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think we do. I think we're going to learn a lot, though, over the next few months. You've got a couple of very big deals, and I wouldn't say they're back burner. I'd say they're actually, you know, finally kind of sitting on that front uh -huh. burner, and we're going to get a real sense of whether how the Trump administration thinks about deals. You know, in terms of big ones, in my world, obviously the Time Warner AT&T deal, which appears like it's going to be pushed through. The one that's a little less clear, although it seems likely, is Sinclair Tribune. Uh, and obviously that's a huge consolidation of a broadcast industry merger that we should find out about over the next several months. Uh, and then obviously in Walt's world, Walt Pysik, I'm talking about, BTIG's telecom analyst, uh, you obviously, you know, have the question marks around whether or not we see a Sprint T-Mobile deal. But, you know, all of that will probably give you a, a better sense of what is and isn't possible from an antitrust standpoint in this administration. Just while we're, we're in Washington, let me ask you a couple questions about the social media companies that you follow. We, we're looking ahead to November 1st when uh, maybe not the heads of those companies we've learned, but uh, high-ranking members of those companies are going to come to the Hill to testify. How much does uh, the weight of Washington scrutiny weigh on, on companies like Twitter and Facebook right now? Look, I think everyone is, you know, every social or every Internet company yeah. should be concerned about greater regulation. I mean, there's no doubt that... Uh, the lack of regulation has certainly allowed these companies to flourish uh, and the Internet to flourish more generally over the course of the last several years. You know, we were talking about the loss in market cap of Disney and the larger you know, media sector over the last couple of years. Well, in just the last two years, it's worth pointing out that Facebook and Google have added $550 billion together of market cap. And so, you know, there is huge, huge, you know, growth coming out of the Internet, uh, any kind of 
fear of increased regulation, and not just regulation, but how do you actually, you know, how do you actually regulate the sector isn't clear to us, but that certainly should be a concern to any investor looking at the space. I'm making a chart. Just keep asking Sorry. questions, David. <laughs> I thought you were about I'm to steal- jump in there. I'm stealing as we go. <laughs> Let me ask you about streaming and where things stand. Is, is there a company that you look to as an example of, of a company that's doing going about streaming the right way? Uh, I know you've been critical of, of Disney's approach. Is, is there a company that's approaching streaming in a way that's novel, that's I, working, that I, we I could learn from? Cri- I'm actually not critical of Disney's approach. I think they waited too long. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I think that's the key issue is that they've waited so long. They're not launching their streaming service until the end of 2019. Right, when, yeah when Netflix will probably have by then 150 or 160 million subscribers. So it's just hard to start from a standing start when the peers are so big, let alone Amazon, and we could go on and on. Um, I think probably the company that's done the best job in the legacy space is probably CBS. You know, they got out, they have CBS All Access, they've got a couple of million subscribers. CBS's problem is not the product. Their problem is they just don't have a wide enough palette of content to throw at it. You know, they really need to be part of a larger company. It's why we've been arguing for a CBS Viacom merger, because it would give them the ability to make a much more robust CBS Viacom All Access versus uh, still a fairly limited, nichier CBS All Access. Uh, We want them to build a new bundle. One final question. I'm going to put your chat out in a few minutes, and I'll, I maybe we'll give credit to Rich Greenfield. Uh, Rich, <laughs> Rich w- within this is Amazon. I, I said this on television earlier today. Every conversation now seems to have Amazon uh, in it. Are you long Amazon from a strategic standpoint in the Greenfield media world? Look, Amazon is someone everyone in so many industries should be scared about. I think, you know, the reality is they've spent a tremendous amount of money in the media space already, both, me- you know, video and music. Uh, I think they're going to be a major player in music over the next few years. And I think from a video standpoint, while their investment of 4 to $5 billion over the last year probably hasn't translated into the critical and consumer kind of viewership success they would have liked, uh, I definitely would not count Amazon out. I think they're going to be a major player for video, and I think the real thing, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this right now, the, the major thing your listeners should be thinking about is what are the odds that Amazon buys Monday Night Football rights? Because mm-hmm. I, I think that is the that that's what the real prize that they're looking at is. They're warming up with Thursday Night Football simulcast, but I think right. Amazon has much much bigger ambitions. And if you want to disrupt the media space, the way to disrupt all of legacy media and TV yeah. is to take sports away. Yeah from legacy media and from TV. And I think Amazon's preparing to do that. Brilliant. Rich Greenfield, greatly appreciate the time. He's with BTIG. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.